Welcome to Interviews for Resistance. We are now into the second year of the Trump administration, and the last year has been filled with ups and downs, important victories, successful holding campaigns, and painful defeats. We've learned a lot, but there's always more to learn and more to be done. In this now weekly series, we talk with organizers, agitators, and educators, not only about how to resist, but how to build a better world. I am Sarah Jaffe, your host. Uh, hi, I'm Kathy Alvisa. I'm the Executive Director of the National Economic and Social Rights Initiative. Wonderful. So, Kathy, we are here to talk about a new project, a new initiative from Nesri and from um, several partners. So why don't you start off by telling us about this, this uh, the new project that you're launching and, and where it's going. Uh, well, the project is called A New Social Contract. We just published a report uh, called A New Social Contract collective solutions built by and for communities. And the purpose is to sort of drive dialogue and create a national conversation about what is the alternative uh, that we want to see for a different future. We know that the current system isn't working for anyone, um, and the middle is sort of collapsing. And we need to be proactive, we need to be creative, we need to be bold, we need to be innovative to really uh, step into what is an incredibly unstable moment and try to offer solutions that are both grounded but also high bar and ambitious so that we move past what's a very dystopian political landscape that we're all currently suffering under. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's a really important thing to be doing in this particular moment in time when people can be very focused on sort of Trump and all the awful things that are happening. To say that we should be forward-looking and we should be thinking about what a system that works for people might look like. Um, so you should tell us a little bit about the, the process that went into thinking about and putting together this project. Well, the yeah, I mean, and, and just to emphasize, we we do we want to we want to be looking forward because we all know that what's currently happening isn't sustainable. So we have to build readiness. Right. And while we are all in very high defense mode, uh, as they say in sports metaphors, right, the best mm -hmm. defense is a good offense, and this is part of it. We need to build an opposition, not just a resistance. The process um, is one where we thought it was important that anything that we share and put out uh, to engage and reflect and, and talk to people about would be grounded in real, life, real lived experience. So mm -hmm. the, the report and the project is really focused on solutions the communities have been advancing or modeling or promoting now for decades, um, if not longer. The, you know, the, the current problems didn't appear overnight. They have been building up. And solutions, who, and solutions have emerged from communities that have been essentially on the front lines of injustice. They've had no choice but to figure out how to address their own needs. And in addressing their own needs, they have really come up with thoughtful alternatives that are that are that would be better for everyone. Yeah. And so in doing that, you get, you know, different communities that are coming up with different solutions to often very different problems depending on where they are. Um, so can you talk about a little bit um, sort of stitching together these different solutions into something that looks like a broader vision for um, a new social contract? Sure. Well, the, f the first thing we wanted to do is make sure we were looking at things that were truly structural. Right, that right. they that would address the various intersections of injustice that people are experiencing today. 
structural solutions will deal with economic, racial, gender, climate justice, um, all at once because they're they're looking at the root cause, right? And these root causes are interrelated. Uh, and once we looked at those structural solutions, we did see certain things that they had in common. The first one should be a no surprise to anyone, which is that they're driven by values. Too much in our economic and social policy is driven by profit, uh, driven by hate, driven by things that we would consider completely anathema to our values. But these solutions are, are driven by core social justice and human rights values. The second thing we noticed about them was what I sort of mentioned earlier. They really are better for everyone. They center people mm-hmm. that have, that, that have, that are most marginalized. Um, but they're systemic solutions that if we scaled up would really lead to universal systems that address people's basic needs and offer opportunities for neighborhoods to not just survive but thrive all yeah. over the country. The third is that they all, almost all of them, had a really central component that involved revisioning local democracy. Uh, it's no secret that uh, our democracy is in peril right now, right? We've been downgraded by the economists from a, quote, full democracy to a flawed democracy even before this election uh, report was coming out of Princeton, hardly a, a radical institution uh-huh. that deemed that we were an, no longer a democracy, but really more of an oligarchy. So it's clear that communities are feeling this and that they yeah. are coming up with new forms of local democracy, community control, worker ownership, uh, to sort of rebuild that sense of collectivity from the ground up. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the, the specifics then that, that are coming from these different communities. Tell us, give us some examples of what people are thinking about and um, and how we're thinking about scaling them. Sure. So we looked at, at what we found fit into roughly five categories with multiple strategies in each of them. The first mm-hmm. category that that um, we looked at was what happens with our public dollars? How do we raise them and how do we spend them and how do they meet or fail to meet our basic needs. So in in that part of the report where we look at public goods, we we focus on examples like the universal health care movement. You see state based efforts in almost every state right now. Mm-hmm. And the commonality in these efforts to build uh public services and goods like access to health care is that they're premised on a much deeper form of income and risk solidarity than we currently have in our current in our system. And they're also uh, efforts intended to move us from what are a set of fragmented systems that are tiered, you know, mortgages for middle class and public housing for poor people that um, becomes politically vulnerable and then degraded uh, as an example of a a two-tiered kind of approach. It moves us from that to truly universal systems that serve everyone. And there are increasing calls for things like UBI and universal child care. Um, and that obviously has to be paired with a very different kind of revenue strategy. So the other thing we hear are these increasing calls from movements for tax justice, not only the obvious sort of progressive taxation that we need so that we're not moving wealth upwards like the last disaster that happened in, in December with the tax bill, but right. also that we tax differently, that we tax bads, not good. So if, if speculation is what's really 
destroying our economy and the well-being of our country, why aren't we taxing more speculation? So there are examples right. like Baltimore has an effort to tax house flipping, you know, at a higher mm-hmm. level. It turns yeah. out that in Baltimore, out of the 22,000 home purchases, only 16,000 are not by homeowners to other homeowners. They're for-profit entities trying to flip those houses eventually. So right. why aren't we taxing that sort of thing at a higher level? In that particular locality, uh, taxing speculation at even 1% more in what they call a transfer tax would give mm-hmm. $6 million a year for affordable housing, for example. Yeah. That's just one example. The second category we looked at was our relationship to land and housing. That is also currently very speculative. So we were looking at things like community land trusts. There's 200 of them around Mm. the country. They were virtually immune from the foreclosure crisis. This is a model where a community organization owns the land, and but but families and individuals could buy the homes on that land. And when they're resold, because the equity is shared, they're sold at the same level that a family of the same income could afford coming in. So it's right, not like yeah. crazy rising of home prices that, that push mm-hmm. people out. Community-controlled green energy is another example of how we yeah. can use our land and resources in a different way that's both uh, community-controlled and healthier for everyone. The next yeah. category was labor. Uh, no one needs to to be told that our labor system is in crisis, that our job situation is untenable. So we mm-hmm. looked at things like why aren't we growing worker co-ops in northern Italy? Two out of three workers, for example, work for a co-op. It is a much, it's a very scalable solution if you invest in it. Um, in we also looked at the calls that have been that have come out of movements now for multiple decades for a federal jobs guarantee. We yeah. currently have uh, a system where we set monetary policy to create unemployment at a certain right. percentage, right? We intentionally create at least 4% unemployment. That's millions of people. And then we tell those people they're no good because they're not working and we don't right. support them. If we claim that, that jobs are an essential way to live a decent life, then we have to offer jobs for all. And and it would be less expensive to do that than what we spend, let's say, on our military. Um, and you have to ask yourself what really is going to bring uh, a greater sense of public good for people. Um, as between those two two choices. <laughs> Economists have determined that it is actually within our reach to do that. Uh, the third thing we look at is enforcement of basic labor rights. Enforcement mm-hmm. right now is a lawless environment. There, there, You cannot enforce rights in low-wage workplaces almost anywhere in the country. But workers have come up with their own solutions, uh, either uh, through what's remaining sort of a union contracts, but also there's a revolutionary new approach that we call and our partners call worker-driven social responsibility where worker groups have actually been entering into agreements with buyers at top of corporate supply chains in order to um, insist on protection of the rights of workers at the bottom of the supply chains because so much of our economy is now about these these corporate supply chains that sort of squeeze low-wage workers um, at the bottom. And you can look right. at the Coalition of Immokalee Workers Fair Food Program as, as a prime example of that model. It's now being replicated in the dairy industry in Vermont and explored by workers not only here in the United States but around the world. Um, that, is a, that is a model where workers actually run their own enforcement programs, so it really deepens workplace democracy. The, the other area that we looked at was how financing flows 
right? So we know that the invisible hand of finance is choking the American people, right? We can't breathe. We can't breathe because money is being extracted from localities and moved to centers of wealth and taken out of the places where it needs to be in order to meet basic needs. But we could have things like public banking. North Dakota's had one for 100 years. Um, and when you have a public bank, your public money is held in that public bank and reinvested in the community. You could have things like postal banking for the, for the millions of families that actually don't have access to the banking system. And that's why we have the kind of predatory payday loans and other problems like that. M- many countries in the world already have different forms of postal banking. So we, and it used to exist here in the United States many decades ago. So we know it's possible. Uh, there are ways to transform private finance. So it's not about moving money just to make money rather than meeting the needs of people. And there are models in the report as well and community investment funds and other, and other alternatives. Finally, the last section was on how do we, how do we re, how do we very directly engage the need to rebuild democracy? And that really focuses on first, uh, the essential task of decriminalizing because so long as so many people are criminalized, they cannot participate as full members of of society, whether that criminalization is formally in the, uh, you know, in the, in, through incarceration or whether it's pushing people out of schools and social services and public spaces, uh, because they're targeted for punitive, um, these sort of punitive, um, actions by the state, right? Uh, so if we have to fully decriminalize and what communities have been doing is, is really putting forth restorative justice as the alternative, which is a model of rebuilding and repairing relationships rather than moving immediately into a punitive uh, form of action every time a conflict or a disagreement or a problem comes up. And that's something that's been a very big movement in our schools to end the school-to-prison pipeline mm-hmm. as an example. And finally, once we decriminalize, we have to bring people into government and into government decision-making. So the, the, the case study we, we lift up is the participatory budgeting that people around the country have been doing. Uh, you look at places like Jackson, Mississippi, for example, and they're trying to do both participatory and human rights budgeting. This is a model that's been tested for years in Brazil where, where people actually participate in how their public money is spent in order to make sure that it's equitable and that everyone's needs are met. So I realize that's a lot, but that's a sort of <laughs> that's the best I can do as a thumbnail description yeah. of the various areas we've looked at. Yeah, no, it's great. It's it is interesting when you start to think about them all in that kind of a you know fairly short uh, summary. You do hear the same sort of structures happening again and again, right? So it's how do we democratize ownership over things? How do we um, distribute power among more people? Things like that, right? Right. How do we democratize? How do we do it in a way that's equitable and inclusive, right? Because we know democracy can go off the rails. It's not as if democracy by itself is a magic bullet. You know, we don't want mob rule. We want inclusive democracy that makes space for everyone to participate and have agency and power. So that's, okay. that, that's where you really think about the role of rights, the role of universal systems to make sure everyone is included and you're not marginalizing people. And it's important that we get our vision of democracy right as we try to move past this crisis. 
Yeah. And in talking about this stuff, um, the, the phrase targeted universalism is used mm-hmm. in introducing this to me. Um, so talk a little bit about what that means and the sort of um, – there's been a lot of sort of bad binary debates, I guess I would say, about, like, do we talk about racism or do we talk about the economy? And, like, mm-hmm. the way that and you think through this I think is useful in, in sort of trying to parse that often frustrating argument. Right. And I think that the, the the answer has to be, well, you can't talk about the economy without talking about race, just like you can't talk right. about the economy without talking about gender or climate. These are all things that um, shape, drive, and challenge our current, you know, challenge us currently in our economic structures. The, the question is, what is the, you know, again, what's the vision and what's the solution? It has to be a solution for everyone. Um, and this concept of targeted universalism, which different people, you know, define slightly differently, but the way we're using it is we have the capacity to create systems that are universal. And the systems that are universal or near universal have been the ones that have had the most political buy-in and have worked best. Uh, if you look at other countries, universal healthcare systems have certainly worked much better than our fragmented system where half of all public dollars go to healthcare, but somehow it's still being sucked up primarily by the private market. Uh, we, you look at Social Security in this country, it's a very popular program. It's consistently under attack, but it's a very popular program because it's near universal. Everybody has a stake. Um, but you have to create those systems in a way that center people that have been most marginalized. Otherwise, you're not going to achieve true universality. Uh, to achieve true universality, you have to talk about race, you have to talk about gender, you have to talk about disability, you have to talk about people that are facing particular historical oppressions, challenges, or needs. Otherwise, you, you fail in creating a truly universal system. And that's really the, the idea behind targeted universalism. How do we think about a system that serves everyone by starting with people that are, are facing the greatest marginalization right now? Yeah, yeah. And so moving forward from here, um, what what are the next steps? What are people doing around these projects? I mean, a lot of this is coming from work people are already doing on the ground, but um, how are people, I guess, linking up and, and thinking about, you know, moving this towards the next level? Yeah, this work is already happening. I think the right. project's purpose is, is about echoing it and recognizing it and getting it uh, embraced and adopted in in different um, in different spaces. So we have some very interesting uh, debates and right now and new candidates in the electoral space. They should be talking about what communities are doing. They should be embracing it as their political agenda as we have more and more progressive candidates going into the pipeline. Uh, we have media covering almost obsessively the horrors that are happening uh, daily coming from the federal level, but also from the local level as white supremacists and others are emboldened to say and do things that they weren't doing previous to this administration. But we need to get the media to also start talking about what do people want? What are the alternatives? How do we get that dialogue happening? And we need to, to try to, as many people are, we're hardly the only ones, connect our movements and understand that all our efforts are in fact interrelated. We need to look at what is a, a new social contract uh, for women and for women of color and what is it, how does it relate to climate justice. Uh, we, we need to 
to create a larger conversation to change our collective assumptions about what's possible. Because only then will we create the political conditions for a larger shift. And we feel like it's important that everyone, to the extent possible, contribute to that because this is a unique historical moment that requires that kind of stepping up. Yeah. Anything else people should know about all of this other than they should go read your report? Um, well, it would be great if they read the report. Uh, I'll put in a plug for uh, in September. There's going to be a March for Black Women here in New York, and there will be many sister marches that's being organized by Black Women's Blueprint. And they will be talking about a new social contract for black women. We'll be doing a few things together. Uh, we will be doing ongoing events uh, at the New School. We did our launch there and looking at specific arenas like labor or like land, and we invite people to keep, uh, you know, to sign up to our listserv and and follow those announcement, announcements. They'll all be live streamed, and we'll be creating new tools and products to share and looking for people like you to continue this conversation uh, so that we all define this together. One report does not define a new social contract, right? But it's about sort of pushing that dialogue and conversation so that we're all engaging with it and find uh, a bigger operational kind of vision that we can in many ways push forward from wherever we sit. Yeah, wonderful. And where can people find the report and keep up with you? Uh, the Well, our website is www.nesri.org, N-E-S-R-I.org, and um, you can find the report there and sign up on the listserv, and we will be thrilled to keep anyone updated on what's happening next. Interviews for Resistance is a project of Sarah Jaffe with assistance from Laura Fayabois and support from the Nation Institute. You can find more information at NecessaryTrouble.org. Thanks for listening.